Hello, I'm Hugh Ross. I'm the uh, founder of Reasons to Believe, senior scholar at Reasons to Believe. My background's astrophysics. And uh, welcome to Stars, Cells, and God. Uh, it's the weekly podcast uh, where you can watch what we have to say about the latest scientific discoveries that provide more evidence uh, for the Christian faith. And uh, uh, you can, we, we are available on uh, YouTube. Uh, Reasons to Believe has a, has a YouTube channel. And so uh, you can subscribe to that and you'll be notified of our latest video offerings. And you can watch the previous episodes of Stars, uh, Cells, and God. And RTV underscore official is your gateway uh, to all the social media outlets of Reasons to Believe. Uh, and you're welcome to post questions uh, to all of the scholars on staff at Reasons to Believe. All of us have a Facebook and Twitter page uh, where we take questions. And today I'm going to be joined by Pat McGuire. We've had a long relationship, several decades uh, with Pat McGuire. And I'll just give you a quick uh, summary of, uh, of his credentials. And then I'm going to turn it over to him so that he can present uh, the discovery he'll be talking about. Uh, Patrick McGuire is a senior reservoir engineering consultant at International Reservoir Technologies with 40 years of energy industry experience working for ARCO, BP, and IRT. He's a world-class expert in enhanced oil recovery. For years, he worked at designing and implementing advanced oil recovery processes uh, for uh, Alaska's North Slope, which is home to North America's largest oil fields. McGuire previously did energy research at Sandia National Laboratories and Los Alamos National Laboratory. Had an opportunity to speak of both of those places a few times. Uh, he has authored numerous technical papers on topics such as drilling technology and enhanced oil recovery. McGuire also holds seven U.S. patents. While serving as a distinguished lecturer for the Society of Petroleum Engineers during 1998, 1999, and 2018, McGuire addressed over 40 uh, sections in Canada of the Society for Petroleum Engineers, uh, sections in Canada, Mexico, Europe, Australia, Asia, and the Middle East. And Pat first became acquainted with Reasons to Believe in 1987, uh, when he met Hugh Ross, that's when I was speaking in Anchorage, uh, where he was working at the time. Uh, he was president of Reasons to Believe Alaska's chapter before moving to Denmark in 2009, and has spoken on intelligent design to science and engineering students in China. He is currently working uh, on projects in Alaska, Russia, and the continental uh, US. So uh, Pat, I'm gonna ask you to take it away, share with us about your discovery, and let's have fun engaging on that. Yes, and, and we do go back a long time, Hugh, all the way back to 1987. Well, that's what, uh, only 35 years. <laughs> yeah, that's a long haul. Uh, what I uh, wanted to talk today about was, uh, which I think is a very timely uh, issue. It's actually incredibly timely given the economic uh, and uh, human crisis times we're in, is advancing human flourishing. And the, uh, the, the things I'm gonna focus on are energy, carbon dioxide, and food. I posted this, uh, this particular graphic on my Facebook site a couple of weeks back, 
And uh, what it shows is uh, something I'm sure everybody is aware of, nobody needs to, me to talk to them about, is inflation. And the, the focus of this slide really is, is basically on food. And so you can see eggs are up 33%, butter's up 20%, uh, chicken up almost 20, milk's up 16. Uh, this, is, uh, this is really impactful on human flourishing. And uh, the, the, the thing that's affecting food is really fuel costs, it's, it's energy costs. Food cost is dominated by what it takes to plow, it, plow the fields, plant the crops. Uh, there's a huge amount of cost involved in making and applying fertilizer. And then uh, you gotta have fuel to harvest the crops uh, and to process, uh, process the materials into something that we can actually use as sending to grocery stores. It's all, all gotta be transported and then it's got to be stored and refrigerated. And all of this is very consumptive on energy. So the energy costs are driving this massive inflation. And uh, my, my context to this was this is being caused by a, uh, what is referred to as the war on fossil fuels. And uh, one of my friends, uh, I hadn't heard from him in a while, but he's a, a, a solid Christian brother, is made, made this statement we are all going to have to make significant sacrifices for our planet and the people in it to literally survive. And so that's what we're going to look at today is, well, what, what do we need to do to survive? Not just to survive, but to thrive. And is Bill right? Is, is, are we going to have to make huge sacrifices or is what we're doing now going to get us there? So I, I thought I'd uh, take you know, take this topic on, but start from the very, very beginning, and that is Genesis 1. And I think we have a very clear uh, charge from, from the Lord. Uh, in, I, I like the message translation in this a lot, so I'm going to go ahead and read this. God spoke, let us make human beings in our image, make them reflecting our nature so they can be responsible for the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, the cattle, and yes, earth itself, and every animal that moves on the face of the earth. God created human beings. He created them godlike, reflecting God's nature. He created them male and female. God blessed them. Prosper, reproduce, fill earth, take charge, be responsible for the fish in the sea and the birds in the air, for every living thing that moves on the face of the earth. It's a, it's a pretty clear charge. God wants us to not, not to have no impact on the planet. He wants us to steward this planet, but he wants it, and for our benefit, but he wants us to be responsible for all of the fish, the birds, the, the cattle. Uh, so it's, it's a very clear charge of stewardship. And, uh, the, the book, uh, it just came out. It's called Fossil Future, uh, Why Global Human Flourishing Requires More Oil, Coal, and Natural Gas, Not Less. This uh, book came out uh, late May of 2022. And uh, it's, it's an excellent book. I'm, I'm, I'm still reading it. Uh, but this guy does a great job of analyzing the different ways we can approach stewardship of planet Earth and, and why that's important. And there's this one he labels the delicate nurturer. 
And uh, it's like our job is to protect this delicate planet, to minimize human impact. And systematically what happens is when you, when you read people with this viewpoint, they ignore the huge benefits of fossil fuels and, and focus instead on what, what the downsides might be. And it's almost universal opposition to nuclear energy and fossil fuels. And then there's a, a very demonstrated tendency to what is called catastrophize the risks, which basically means look at the extreme cases uh, and, and basically you're, you're looking for, for press and to, to get people excited about this is a huge issue. Uh, the uh, other viewpoint, and there's obviously more than two, but these are the two major ones, is what this guy, uh, Alex Epstein, calls the provider improver. And basically, he doesn't use this language, but I will. God put Adam and Eve in the garden to till it. it apples didn't fall out of trees for them to eat. They were in a garden to till. Uh, so they had to improve it. And uh, then we're commanded this good stewardship. So the provider, you provide for people, but you also do good stewardship. There's another key point, and, and Alex wrote a book uh, back in 2014 called The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, and it is energy delivers people out of poverty. People that don't have energy are in deep, deep poverty in a lot of different ways. And then uh, basically uh, done properly, uh, the provider improver very definitely is going to support nuclear energy and fossil fuels because those are the 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 ones that provide cheap, stable energy that improves our lives. And then the last one is a balanced assessment of risks and rewards. Uh, you basically, as accurately as one can, looks, looks at, at the risks, you know, the rewards, the costs, the benefits, the pros, the cons. But, but two very different uh, approaches. One is to protect the planet from people, basically. The other is to use the planet to provide for people and do it in a responsible way. Now, uh, I can't think of a better place on planet Earth uh, where you can see how these, this plays out than the boundary between the uh, Dominican Republic, which in this slide is over here on the, the right, and Haiti, which is over here on the left. And there's this road on the boundary of the two countries. And it looks like this in a lot of the boundary between Haiti and the Dominican Republic. Uh, in, in the Dominican Republic, they use fossil fuels to cook. Haiti uses renewable biomass called wood and dung. And uh, there's, there's a, a key here that I want people to understand is that poverty kills. It doesn't kill just people, it kills the land. And again, this is the clearest example I've seen of it. The uh, average Haitian is 10 times poorer than the average Dominican and uh, is much more likely to be unemployed. Uh, there's lots of health issues. Uh, one example, the infant mortality rate in Haiti is twice that of the Dominican Republic. So again, one could ask, who is doing the better stewardship of the land? And uh, you guys in California have a, uh, I think, a perfect example of improving the land for the benefit of people. And I, I spent two years in, in California, and I lived in the San Joaquin Valley. Uh, I, I was doing oil, but 
the San Joaquin Valley is basically almost worthless desert. But if you put water on it, it is some of the best cropland on the planet. You can grow anything in San Joaquin Valley. And so this is just an example of improving the land. So this, uh, the San Joaquin is in a lot of ways the breadbasket of the United States. Uh, it's fabulously fertile farmland if we improve the land by irrigating it with water from somewhere else. So back, back to the book, Fossil Future. Uh, there was a quote, this isn't actually in the book, it's on the first review I saw of the book. And I thought this was very insightful. Everyone seemed to report findings using selected data which supported their side, but not findings that contradicted it. It seemed that a political agenda was constantly mixed in with a science agenda. Soon one viewpoint became dominant, that fossil fuels were destroying the earth, maybe even in the next 10 years, and needed to be abandoned to prevent a worldwide catastrophe. People who disagreed with this could be harassed, mocked, and even risked job loss. Scientific findings could only be published in some journals if they came out with the quote, right, unquote, results. So now, now it's time to get into some of the science. And uh, there's a really excellent article uh, it's called Empirical Evidence of Declining Global Vulnerability to Climate-Related Hazards. It's a, a big title, but basically uh, this guy analyzed uh, the data from 1980 through 2016. And uh, you know, so that's a, that's a long time frame, and, but the data is good. And uh, they're, they're looking at, at both death and, and the economic damage due to uh, catastrophic events like floods, tornadoes, hurricanes. And the, the key is, is this, uh, I've highlighted it in black. Results show a clear decreasing trend in both human and economic vulnerability with global average mortality and economic loss rates that have dropped by 6.5 and nearly five times respectively from 1980 to 2016. So the, the Economic damage, uh, the well, adjusted for GDP, of course, but the economic damage as a, as a function of what's out there to be hurt and the lives that are out there to be lost, uh, it's getting better and better and better uh, radically. These are not small numbers. These are huge numbers. But there is a caveat, and that is uh, poor countries are still at risk. So there's a, a considerable climate hazard for, for the poor countries, which basically means rich countries have dealt with this very well. Uh, the Dutch have dealt with flooding in Bangladesh, not so much. And here's uh, another really, uh, really good article. Global disasters, a remarkable story of science and policy success. Believe it or not, disaster trends are moving in a positive direction. This guy, uh, Roger Pilkey Jr., he's a professor up at the uh, University of Colorado in Boulder, so he's just up the road from us. Uh, and he's been tracking this for a very long time. And uh, his uh, statement here, 2020 saw about 8,200 people die in natural catastrophes. And that's, that's, that's a lot of people and it's a tragedy for every one of them, but in historical context, it is tiny. 
A century ago, the world averaged more than 550,000 deaths per year from disasters. And uh, as, as, as global population has increased, it's, it's gone up, the, uh, the number of people who die in disasters has gone down. So this means that we're getting very, very much better at preventing death from uh, uh, climate-related issues. And this, uh, this is probably the best graph I've seen on, on that particular number. It's a, it's a logarithmic scale. So this is, this is death for millions, million people. And this is for United States tornado. So this is just looking at the United States. But uh, you can see back in the you know, late 1800s through the early 1900s, you know, we had a lot of people dying. And then things about 1925 uh, started really getting better. And so the, the trend has been way, way, way down. And this is a logarithmic scale. So this is just a huge drop in the, the number of deaths per million people that are in harm's way. And, uh, but it, the data stops in 2010. So I've thrown the, the death data from uh, 2011 forward on here. And uh, it's still a lot of people, but we're, we're talking about, uh, with one exception in 2011, we're talking about less than 100 people a year. Uh, 2022 data, there have been uh, 21 tornado-related deaths thus far this year. 17 of them are in the United States. So uh, it's, uh, it's radically, radically better than it used to be. So we're getting much better at warning people. We're getting better at building houses and stuff that resist tornadoes. Uh, but, but it's a very good story. Now that's the people side, this is the economic side. And uh, uh, while there's a lot of scatter in this data, uh, this is uh, economic data, it's normalized because we have more stuff today than we had in, in like say 1950. So the, the, the target, the kind of the gross national product uh, of how much stuff is in harm's way is, is factored into this. But that allows you to see whether storms are getting worse or whether we're getting better at dealing with economic damage. And the trend is very clear. The, the normalized damage is dropping. Uh, and 2021 was a bad year, but uh, it was still, the, the trend is obvious. We're getting better and better at dealing with tornado damage. And this, uh, this slide is a, uh, a picture, this is all, all kinds of, of disasters, you know, tornadoes, floods, hurricanes, uh, and this is worldwide. And it's uh, basically a, a weather loss as a percentage of the global gross domestic product. So a uh, lot, lot more stuff is, is out here to be hit in 2020 than there was in 1990. So you have to account for that. But basically, when you do, there's a, there's a clear downward trend in damage as we're just getting better and better at dealing with at climate disasters. Now, this is, uh, this is not anything to do with economic disasters. This is just absolute numbers of, of tornadoes that have hit the United States. And uh, uh, we're, uh, again, it's, it's not a, a strong trend. But it's a clear downward trend in the number of tornadoes, excuse me, number of hurricanes that have hit the United States year by year from 1900 through present. And uh, 
it's kind of surprising to me because we're a lot better at, at picking small hurricanes now than, than we were in like the year 1900. Uh, you know, the, the small ones could go unnoticed back then. Uh, populations were a lot less and, and we, don't, we didn't have the data to record them. But the big ones tell the same story. Now, this is the major hurricanes that nobody's going to miss, even in the year 1900. And uh, what we see is uh, basically a, a slow downward trend. We had one horrible year in 2005, and I think this is Hurricane Katrina, and just it was a bad year. Then we went 10 years without having any major hurricanes hit. But in general, the trend is not increasing it's flat or decreasing. And probably statistically, it's best to show that there's, uh, there's not a statistical trend. Uh, we're getting more absolute damage because we've got a lot more people uh, in places like Miami than we had in the year 1900. But uh, number of hurricanes and the intensity of the hurricanes is not increasing. Now, this is a plot of temperature. So storms are not increasing. Uh, deaths are going radically downward. Uh, what about the temperatures? And uh, my favorite temperature data is actually the, uh, the global satellite data. And it's not affected by things like, like for example, urban heat island uh, effect. And I, I don't have any idea, but I suspect the Orange County Airport probably recorded a temperature increase when they tore out orange groves and, and put in uh, you know, freeways and parking lots. And that's a local effect, not a global effect, but these satellite, uh, uh, the satellite data is impervious to these local effects. And uh, it's, it's recorded all over the world with the exception of right at the poles and it's recorded on a daily basis from about 15 satellites. Uh, and it, they've been doing this since 1979. And uh, the guy that uh, came up with this technology, a guy named Roy Spencer, uh, back in the 70s, worked for NASA. And he tracks all this stuff for NASA uh, at the University of Alabama, Huntsville. So they've got, uh, this is the data. And it basically shows month by month. So every month at the beginning of the month, they show last month's data. And what it's showing is the temperature, how it's changed over time. And there's a lot of oscillation in it. And there's a, there's a steady increase in temperature, but it's quite slow. And uh, the, the, this temperature has been normalized to between the year 2000 and 2010, so that's zero. And uh, this is the data that we got a few weeks ago from June of 2022. And it is 0 0.06 degrees centigrade higher than the 2000 to 2010 average. So we're, we're now, the global atmospheric temperature, the troposphere, is essentially at the same temperature as it was 20 years ago. It's, it's, the temperature is identical on a global basis. And again, this is, uh, it's, 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 this is the entire planet. It's not one area or the other. They've broken it down over, over land masses and over oceans. But uh, this, I think, is the best data that we have in terms of what the temperatures are actually doing. And this, uh, I wish they'd update this slide because they did this back in like, I think this was in 2019, they might have done this slide. I wish they'd update it. But uh, 
they're comparing, uh, in this case, it's the CMIP-5, which is the, uh, the, the models that the United Nations panel on the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is using to forecast uh, future temperatures as a result of, of what we're doing by, by emitting carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And uh, the, uh, the data as it goes by is getting more and more and more skewed to the low side of these predictions. And uh, this June of 2022 data plots right here. So basically we are now completely outside the range of any of the CMIP-5 climate models. They've just been replaced with the CMIP-6 and they run even hotter. So the, the observed data for the global troposphere uh, is, is maybe it's less than half, perhaps a third of what the average forecast is. And this is a huge problem uh, with the, the, the CMIP climate models. And- uh, Yeah, Pat, have you seen the, uh, the temperature profile uh, where they take temperature measurements uh, several hundred miles offshore of the continents? And I find what's interesting about that is you're only taking temperatures over the surface of the ocean. Uh, there is no altitude effect because a lot of these land-based measurements, if you're up 3,000 feet, uh, you're going to get greater temperature variability just mm -hmm. because you've got uh, less atmosphere to deal with. And uh, I think that was published about uh, five months ago in the scientific literature and basically saying this is the data we need to look at uh, rather than Antarctica or Greenland, uh, because we take out the altitude effect, we take out the effect of the continental land masses, and we're looking everywhere over the world, uh, about 500 miles offshore from the continental land masses. And what's interesting is the noise is a whole lot less, because I think what you're showing us here, there's a lot of noise in the data. Well, there's a lot of noise because of where all the temperature measurements are being taken. And uh, you know, there's a lot of variables that are contributing to the noise. So uh, uh, maybe that's something we should be looking at. Uh, it does show a temperature increase. Uh, it does show that things were stable uh, up until about 1950, uh, but then just so, and as you point out, it's a gradual uh, increase, uh, but we're looking at about at degrees centigrade. We're not looking at two or three degrees centigrade. That, that's exactly right, Hugh. I think these, uh, these are called Argos, these boys that, that they go up and down a couple of kilometers and take all these measurements. I mean, it's, it's incredibly cool technology for, for, for nerds uh, because these, these guys, they measure not just at the surface or whatever, but these things actually go up and down mm -hmm. uh, a couple of kilometers. And it's the first time we've ever had that kind of data. And there's, I guess, hundreds of these things now. So we're starting to get this global data on the oceans as well. Right. And the ocean has far more heat mass than the atmosphere. So it's, it's going to respond in a much more stable manner. Yeah, that's why you get a lot less noise. Okay, so uh, now here's another one. We, so the, the atmosphere is getting warmer. The oceans are also getting warmer, but they're getting warmer at much slower rates than these predictions. And uh, the, the other thing about it that we can track from space, and I like the satellite data because it's, it's you really can measure this accurately. It's not point data. You can actually see the entire Arctic in this case. And uh, what I'm showing here is the, 
the this is in millions of square kilometers and this is the extent of the arctic sea ice and uh, uh it's been tracked since 1979 i think also and uh, uh basically you're seeing in the you know here's like spring Mar march and so the ice hits its maximum coverage typically in march of every year and uh and then summer comes along and the ice melts and then it refreezes. Uh, but what I'm showing here is, uh, this is the data from 1982 when I moved to Alaska. And we, we tracked this quite closely because we had to get our equipment at Prudhoe Bay around Point Barrow. And uh, there were years when the ice never broke and we couldn't get any equipment in. And in my project, uh, uh, a $1.5 billion plant came in by barge in 1986 and we were just holding our breath to see if we could actually get past Point Barrow, we did. But then what's, what you see is uh, it's the ice extent has been getting less and less and less uh, over the, the decades. So for example, here's 82 and I moved to Alaska. The orange curve here, that's the 1980s. The uh, green curve, that's the 1990s. The uh, black curve here, that's the average for the 2000s. And then the blue curve, is the average for the 2010 to 2020 timeframe. So uh, uh, then that was pr a pretty steady trend. But when you look at it in a little more detail, what, what happens is uh, the, in, in 2007, I plotted this because that's when things started to change. The, the lowest ice ever recorded was in 2012, but in 2007, things started to go the other way. So for example, the, uh, the green line here, that's 2021. That's last year. And then our ice coverage so far this year in 2022 is this, this blue line here. And we're on track, and we're, we're another month and a half out, uh, but we're on track to be well over 5 million square kilometers. So we're going to be looking more like 2005. It's It's Again, we'll know in two months whether you know whether this thing moves because I've I've seen it do strange things. But again, we're we're on not a decreasing trend, but actually an increasing trend. And then if you look down here, that's uh, that's 2007, and this this is a plot of the the summer ice coverage and the winter, and you can see just a steady drop uh, until 2007, and then it's I would call this flat at 5 million, but that's, and it's probably going to be a little over 5 million this year, but we've got now 15 years of steady ice in the summer Arctic. And I, one year, two years, that, that doesn't make any kind of trend. Five years is even pretty flimsy evidence, but 15 straight years is something going on here. I haven't heard of a, a, a I mean, I'd love to see an analysis of this because apparently the global ice is stable at this point in the Arctic. Yeah, Pat, uh, you know, I've been writing on this, making the point that what might be responsible for the reverse from 2012 to the present is that there's less black carbon soot being deposited on the Arctic ice. Uh -huh. So the fact that, uh, you know, there is a decrease in the use of coal uh, for fossil fuel uh, may actually explain why we're seeing a slight upward trend. And uh, you know, if we continue to monitor that and actually monitor what is the amount, especially the coal that's being burnt in India and China, 
because yeah. that uh, you know particulate matter from that coal it tends to go north towards Canada and Alaska and to Siberia and so monitoring those two figures I think could give us a really good handle what's really the cause for what's happening here because people are saying well maybe it's the solar cycle but that's only 11 years if you average over 11 years you're going to take up the solar cycle. Right. I'm convinced there's something else going on. And I'm thinking maybe we need to be looking at the black carbon soot. I think, Hugh, that's absolutely right. And in terms of human flourishing, uh, scrubbing for particulates is something we absolutely can do in a cost-effective way. Right. And that's so that's that's a that's a that's low-hanging fruit for another low-hanging fruit you were mentioning earlier that uh, you know, 2.4 billion people uh, get their fuel from wood and dung. And then look at the billions of people that get their fuel and electricity from burning coal. If we were to replace that with natural gas, you know, when you burn natural gas, you get carbon dioxide and water. Well, water is a stable greenhouse gas. It is a greenhouse gas, but if you put more water vapor in the atmosphere, it falls down as rain, so it's relatively stable. Uh, so going to uh, burning natural gas, number one, uh, in most places of the world, it's a cheaper fuel. Uh, it's easier to harvest, and there's lots of it, uh, particularly here in North America. And, uh, you know, if you could, uh, that actually releases only half the greenhouse gases that you get from burning a wood or dung and coal. So in my opinion, it's the fastest way uh, to pull greenhouse gases down from the atmosphere, you know, target the right fossil fuel, and uh, you'll get an immediate benefit. It's something we can do right away, and I think it's economically beneficial uh, because uh, we should be able to make that fuel available at a much cheaper price uh, than, say, coal. It's easier to transport. Uh, again, there's lots of it around the world, and you were mentioning nuclear energy. You know, people are really concerned about the toxicity about uranium nuclear reactors. However, if you go to thorium nuclear reactors, you get three times the energy output per ton of thorium than you do with uranium. Uh, there's three times as much thorium in the crust of the earth, and uh, you will not get uh, the incredibly toxic radioactive waste. With uranium, uh, you've got really uh, highly radioactive toxic remains that lasts for 50,000 years. With thorium, it's 50 to 200 years. And you don't need special equipment to mine the thorium. It's impossible to have a thorium nuclear reactor meltdown. And probably the best news of all, you can't use thorium nuclear reactors to make nuclear weapons. And so it's like, uh, it's a win-win. Uh, the only thing we don't have a good handle on is we've had small thorium nuclear reactors operating since the 1960s. The challenge, this is someone I think would be uh, up your alley, uh, can we economically scale up the small thorium nuclear reactors to really big nuclear reactors where we could produce energy? Uh, but just a little bit of research I've done on it, I think we can produce electricity for a cheaper price than hydroelectric power which right now is the cheapest source of electricity on the planet. And so uh, you mentioned you know, wise use of uh, fossil fuels, wise use of nuclear fuels. If we can just persuade people, hey, there's a way to go uh, where we're gonna get immediate benefits 
I mean, again, with thorium, I think it's going to take us a decade to scale it up to the size of reactors that are going to be needed to get all of our electricity up from the power source. But that's a lot less time than trying to get all of our power uh, from windmills and from solar panels. And again, if you look at windmills and solar panels, there are ecological consequences. And so that needs to be weighed against the ecological consequences of a wiser use of fossil fuels and uh, nuclear energy. I'd love to hear your response. You're gonna like my last slide. Okay. <laughs> I do mention <laughs> thorium. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 that's great. I think you're absolutely right. I actually first heard of thorium reactors from you. And so I did kind of my own research and thought, well, we had a fork in the road, like in the late fifties and we could have gone thorium, but we went uranium. And it right. was primarily because you couldn't use it to make weapons. Right, right. <laughs> so so we, we went the way where we could we could breed uranium-235 and, uh, uh, or excuse me, plutonium-239. Uh, right. But yeah, it, 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 it looks to be just as viable with a lot less side effects. But, uh, right. And then the uranium reactors, this whole next generation molten salt reactors, inherently safe designs, I, I think there's a huge future there. Uh, and both are going to be better than what we're currently doing. Exactly. Cool. You'll like my last slide. Okay. So any, anyhow, on this thing, and, and I, 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 uh, on the ice, I, I just find it fascinating that something is going on, and I don't know whether the Chinese are doing a better job of pollution control, which might be part of it, because they're certainly burning more coal, but maybe they're doing a better job of, of catching the ash. Uh, but this would be fascinating because, uh, you know, the forecasts were that ice was going to be all gone. And I'll, I'll, I'll rain on Al Gore's parade. He made these pronunciations. And polar bears are all going to die. Well, the polar bears are at record populations and the ice is stable. And I would be fascinated to find out why. Uh, now here is, let's get away from the Arctic and go to the whole planet. And uh, one of the interesting things that I, I, you know, I model natural systems for a living, and that's it's it's a it happens to be a geologic system instead of a of a of a climate system. But the same kind of thing. The first thing you want to do when you're trying to model things is what's called history matching. Is that if you take your models and and put all the inputs in it and pull the handle, how does it predict what actually happened? And uh, the, this Roy Spencer guy that who came up with the satellite monitoring stuff, uh, he had a blog this past week because he's got a model for CO2 uh, concentrations in the atmosphere as a function of how much emissions we put out of smokestacks. And uh, you know, one of the things that happens is when you increase the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere, you also increase the amount of, of sequestration because you're, you're taking the chemical reactions equilibrium and you're increasing one side, well, obviously the other side is gonna respond as well. And basically he's matched history uh, for as long as he's got data. And, and the, so his, his model is this blue thing and the observations of the Mauna Loa uh, are, are the, the red. And so it, it, to my book, he's kind of nailed this. And I think this is a fruitful subject for uh, uh, further investigation because knowing how much mother nature pulls out of the sky is actually pretty important for what ends up in the atmosphere. 
And when you look at his forecasts, uh, his, his model is this blue thing here. And uh, the, uh, these RCPs, that's, that's the fancy uh, nomenclature for reference concentration profile. That's what that means. It's 8.5, in this case, 8.5 watts per square meter of, of thermal forcing. Uh, that's a lot of nerd stuff, but the bottom line is the uh, uh, United Nations has these different uh, reference concentration profiles, anywhere from insane to maybe, maybe what's gonna happen to, oh, this is looking pretty good to the basically we, we, don't, we don't burn fossil fuels anymore. Uh, and it looks like where we're headed is actually about 600 parts per million, five to 600. So we're looking at a concentration uh, measured uh, at 2022, and it can either skyrocket or decline, or much more likely it's, it's gonna go somewhere in the middle. Uh, Dr. Spencer's model shows that we're headed to about five to 600 parts per million. Now where that really becomes important, and I'm gonna totally shift gears here, Let's get my slide to advance. There we go. I'm gonna shift gears from energy and carbon dioxide to what I think is a far more serious issue. And that is feeding 8 billion people. And I, I showed this slide, this slide has 2016 data. I've showed this slide before. The data from 2021 is identical. Nothing's changed. And the starvation, it looks like it's gonna get a lot worse in 2022 for various reasons. but. Uh, if you remember before with the, the, the climate change data, in the year 2020, we had 8,200 people die as a result of floods, uh, tornadoes, hurricanes. Well, that's, that's 8,200 people. Well, people that have been dying, uh, it's, it's 9, 10 million people a year. And there's a factor of 1,000 more people dying of starvation than there are of, of climate, uh, being killed by climate issues. So I frankly, I think we're focused on the wrong thing here. And if we look at carbon dioxide emissions and we don't consider feeding 8 billion people, uh, I think we're really missing the boat. Uh, and, and the way I expressed this was uh, another child dies of starvation every four seconds. It takes me four seconds to say that. Another child dies of starvation every four seconds. This is huge and people just don't talk about it, which, which frustrates me. And uh, this is from uh, July 22nd, but today's the 27th. And this is, so this is from last week. Uh, uh, in your home country, Hugh, uh, the prime minister is uh, is moving ahead to reduce the use of allowable use of fertilizer by Canadian farmers as his next step in fighting climate change. Well, the, the, the provincial leaders in like Alberta, Saskatchewan, uh, Manitoba, uh, they're like, you can't do this to us. And their, their quote was, we cannot feed the growing world population with a reduction in fertilizer. And so there's a there's a, a dichotomy here that's very important in terms of human flourishing of uh, eliminating fertilizer because it requires natural gas to manufacture the, uh, the 
the urea ammonia that we use uh, in, in fries basically almost anything. And this actually was done in the country of Sri Lanka. So uh, last year, this uh, president, uh, Rajapaska, Rajapaksa, they, uh, on the behest of some non-governmental organizations and some UN agencies, banned synthetic fertilizer and pesticide imports. And they forced their farmers to, to quote, go organic. And the result has been disastrous. Uh, major food shortages, uh, I mean, they basically had people rioting and people were starving to death. And they rioted and they took over the capital and the president fled for his life. Uh, I don't think he'll ever go back to, to Sri Lanka because they'll probably arrest him. Uh, the Sri Lankan scientists and experts had warned of dire consequences for many crops, such as cocoa, coffee, soybeans, and other staples. Well, in Sri Lanka, rice production dropped 20% in the six months after this organic-only policy was implemented. Instead of feeding itself, the country spent $450 million on rice imports. The production of tea, which is the country's biggest export, fell by 18%. So basically, Sri Lanka is bankrupt. And the population of Sri Lanka is now facing imminent starvation. I mean, this is a humanitarian crisis caused by the green agenda. Yeah, and guess where they imported their food from, from countries that were using fertilizer. So yeah, like Canada. Uh, and, and so yeah, so there's a, because fertilizer, uh, the, the amine in amino acids, which are in our, our, our proteins, comes from the ammonia molecule. The, so that's a, a nitrogen with two hydrogens. Well, that's made by first reforming steam with methane, high pressure and temperature, and that makes hydrogen, emits carbon dioxide. And then that hydrogen is combined with nitrogen from the atmosphere at high pressure and temperature and catalysts, and all of a sudden out comes various forms of ammonia which is the fertilizer, but it's all very energy intensive and it releases carbon dioxide. So that's why people are opposing it. But here's a dichotomy between emitting CO2 or feeding people. It's a, we need to get this one right. So let's go back to uh, what I believe our charge is as, uh, as, as followers of Jesus. And that is prosper, fill the earth, take charge, but be responsible for all of the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, the cattle, and the earth itself, and every animal that moves on it. So we need to get this right. But what I don't think what Trudeau is doing, or what they did in Sri Lanka, is right at all. And here's, here's what really happens. I, I like this graph because uh, this shows the relative yields of, of food crops as a function of CO2 concentrations. And uh, there's a few crops that are corn-based and then some tropical crops like sugarcane and pineapple where it uses a different photosynthetic pathway and it's not very sensitive to carbon dioxide. But everything else that we eat, every tree on the planet, almost everything animals eat, it's, it uses this C3 photosynthesis, photosynthesis pathway and it's very sensitive to the CO2 levels in the atmosphere. And for example, as we double pre-industrial up to 560 parts per million, the crop yields go up, you know, 40, 45%. I mean, it's huge. And this, this will feed an awful lot of people. So this, this really matters. 
Yeah, but with one significant uh, caveat is that, uh, you know, the C3 photosynthesis, soya, wheat, and rice, uh, they're also sensitive to temperature. Uh, the C4 can handle much higher temperatures. Matter of fact, with sugarcane and corn, uh, the optimal temperature for growing it is about uh, 83 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, but for wheat, rice, and soya crops, it's about 67. And so you need to take into account both the carbon dioxide level and the temperature level. And where do you grow these things? Another big factor is uh, soya, wheat, and rice have a lot more nutrition in it as opposed to corn and sugarcane. With corn and sugarcane, you get a lot more calories, uh, but you don't get the nutrients that you get with C3 photosynthesis. And the other factor is virtually every tree in the planet is C3. Yeah. And so as the temperature goes up, you're gonna do great growing corn and a sugarcane, uh, but uh, you're gonna have problems uh, getting the nutrients that you need and getting the lumber you need, the trees you need for shade, et cetera. Yeah. So I just don't wanna minimize that this is a simple problem. There's a lot of complexities and we need to look at each region of the world and say, what's yeah. the best way to go here? And also looking at what does carbon dioxide do uh, for animal respiration? Uh, I think we can go as high as 600 uh, without significant consequences. Beyond that, uh, you're gonna get respiratory issues that also affects the plants. And this is something I know you're up on, Pat, because you did a, a lecture here at Reasons to Believe talking about the uh, you know, photosynthetic productivity and then the respiratory issues. And so, uh, again, I want to make it clear that, uh, you know, we're both aware uh, this is a complex subject, uh, but hey, uh, let's not just look on one point, let's look at all of it and move the best way forward. Exactly. One of my favorite phrases is, to every complex question, there is always a simplistic answer, and it is always wrong. <laughs> Very good. But, so and, any last words, Pat? What's that? Any last words before we yeah. close out? Yeah, basically, this is, uh, and, and in terms of your respiratory stuff, the experts on this is actually the U.S. Navy. Because uh, you're going to stay in a submarine uh, 90 days underwater. Uh, it's really important. And anyhow, uh, but yeah, up to 600 ppm, you get benefits from increasing carbon dioxide. And then it goes flat. And after a while, you actually start getting disbenefits. So, but it's a complex question. But the bottom line is that plants can't live without CO2. And we, we came very close, uh, 15,000 BC, to extermination based on not enough carbon dioxide for a C3 pathway. Right. Uh, Agriculture appeared all over the planet when it hit 250 parts per million. And, uh, and so we're, we're headed to what appears to be kind of an optimum. And that's, that's basically the point here is that if we, if we end up, say in the 500 to 600 ppm range, is probably a good stable place to be. Uh, that's, that, people don't talk about that very much in the media, but that's probably the optimum for human race and the planet as a whole. This crazy 8.5 scenario, uh, it's, it's physically impossible. We couldn't do it if we wanted to, because we would, by the year 2100, we would have to burn more coal than exists in all the coal reserves in planet Earth. So it, it's a physically impossible scenario. Uh, and it's basically meant to scare people. Uh, and it's the one almost always described in the media. 
And I, I think we need to start talking about much more realistic scenarios so we can do the, the what's best for human flourishing. And that's, the, that's my, oh, no, no, Hugh, I promised you the last slide. Here it is. Okay. Here's the last slide. And that is nuclear power is something we should be pushing really hard. And this just shows that like the countries in Europe and their fraction of electricity they generate. And you know, France and Germany are right next to each other. There's very little difference that should be driving this. This is all driven by philosophy. And uh, the Germans are now going to shut down. Well, they may decide differently, but they're going to shut down their last three remaining reactors and go zero. Uh, well, I think it's a totally wrong thing to do. Uh, they're going to start construction in 2024 on this next generation nuclear plant up in Wyoming. And it's a, it's a molten salt plant, which I think is a really good design. Uh, and then also at the very bottom, thorium. I, I think there's a huge potential there and it's going to take us a while to get to, but I, I think that's good stewardship. And looking at these salt, molten salt reactors and the thorium, I think that's, I think that's very healthy. Very good. Yeah, well, I was going to talk about a uh, discovery here, but uh, you know, what you've been bringing up, Pat, I think is really crucial. It's something everybody's talking about. And uh, you know, we've done a lot on this at uh, Reasons to Believe. Thank you for your contributions. So I think it was worthwhile to spend this whole star cells and God on this particular point. And I anticipate this is going to generate a lot of comments and discussion. So uh, we may be sending you some emails. So uh, be prepared for that. Uh, and I'll talk about uh, this discovery uh, about atmospheric sulfur and uh, what happened uh, 66 million years ago, how it impacts uh, our model for life on planet Earth and God's involvement. I'll do that on a future Star, Cells, and God. And I just want to share with all of you, uh, go to reasons.org uh, and reasons.rtb underscore official is your gateway. Uh, to all the different social media uh, platforms that we have, take advantage of that. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, all of our scholars at Reasons to Believe maintain a Facebook and Twitter page where you're welcome to ask questions and post your comments. I'd love to hear back from you uh, what you think about this uh, subject that, that Pat was talking about. A lot of new material that hasn't been posted on reasons.org before. So thank you, Pat. Uh, for your contribution. And uh, by the way, Pat gave a lecture uh, on uh, some of this subject matter, a little more detail, and uh, that's available on our uh, RTB YouTube channel. If you're not a subscriber, I encourage you to subscribe uh, to uh, the Reasons to Believe uh, YouTube channel. Literally thousands of video clips there that you can watch, and the comments are fun to read uh, as well. Uh, so with that, uh, take care, and uh, you can always download previous episodes of Star, Cells, and God uh, from our YouTube channel.